Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me here on the dark side. I'm your host Sherry. We have so much to unpack here with this one. I had never heard of this guy until recently, Mr. John List. He murdered his entire family back in 1971 and managed to avoid police for 18 years. He even took on a new identity and everything. One little tidbit of info here, if you saw the Netflix series, The Watcher, it was a great series. There is a character in the show named John Graff. He's the guy with glasses who kills his whole family. This character was based off of John List. As well, the real Watcher house was 657 Boulevard, Westfield, New Jersey. John List's house is 431 Hillside Avenue, Westfield, New Jersey. The two houses are only six minutes apart. Anyway, this is a crazy story, so let's get right to it. This is episode 87 the case of John List. This story takes place in 1971. The voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. Walt Disney World opened in Florida. Walt Disney actually died five years before this, so he didn't even get to see the construction. The top song was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. Hamburger Helper and the Wonka Bar were invented. Rolls-Royce filed for bankruptcy. Eggs were 25 cents a dozen and milk was 98 cents a gallon. And lastly, Apollo 14 landed on the moon. The next moon landing would come a year later and we haven't been back since. John List was born in Bay City, Michigan in 1925. His parents were John and Alma. Now, his parents had a pretty significant age gap. When John was born, his dad was 61 and his mom was 38, and they were also second cousins. His parents raised him in an extremely religious household, and his mom was overbearing and dominating. His parents forbid him from dancing or any kind of secular activities that would taint his mind. His parents kept him isolated, and when he attended school, he had no friends. He didn't have any brothers or sisters to talk to. And when the local teens would hang out after school or on weekends, John would just stay in the house or attend church with his parents. He wasn't allowed to be around other kids because his mom was afraid that he would get sick. He also wasn't allowed to have any real toys or things to play with. He just had books. So he didn't have much of a life growing up. And once he got older, he resented his parents for all they did to him. But John would grow up and have a family of his own and turn out to be the kind of parent he hated having all of those years ago. So from the ages of 18 to 20, John was in the army and he served in World War II. When the war was over, John enrolled at the University of Michigan and earned a bachelor's degree in business administration. He then earned his master's degree in, in accounting. Now, John had a very high IQ, but it was his social skills and lack of empathy that made people not like him. He was like talking to a brick wall. 
The Korean War comes along in 1950, and John was reported back for active duty and stationed in Virginia. While he was there, he met a young woman, a woman by the name of Helen. Helen and John hit it off. Now, Helen was a widow whose husband had just died in war, and they had a daughter named Brenda. And after just a month of dating, Helen tells John that she's pregnant, so they agree to get married. But just one month after the wedding, Helen announces she's not really pregnant. I'm not sure what her motive was, except maybe just to get John to marry her. But they remain married, you know, even though she lied, likely due to John's religious beliefs about divorce. And there was something else that Helen had lied to John about. She never bothered to tell him that she had syphilis. She said she contracted it from her previous husband, but it was no longer contagious. I would think telling your spouse that you have syphilis would be an important thing to do, but Helen kept it hidden. Just a little background about syphilis. It's a bacterial infection transmitted via sex. It caused her to have a lot of medical problems, and it affected her brain and made her tired most of the time. This really bothered John, knowing that his wife had this sexually transmitted disease. Remember, he is a devout Lutheran, and that is super frowned upon. Helen's symptoms caused her to be lethargic a lot of the time, and sometimes she hallucinated. She was also a heavy drinker, like the kind that wakes up and drinks a martini with her morning paper, and she just continually drank throughout the day. John hated this, especially the times that she missed church. Helen was a homebody most of her adult life. She stayed in the house, but she had just enough social skills that when she did leave the house, she was able to carry on a decent conversation that wouldn't show that there's anything wrong at home. John adopts Helen's daughter, Brenda, and at the age of 16, Brenda discovers that she is pregnant. So John and Helen send her away to a home for unwed mothers. I know it's hard to believe that that's what families did back then, but it was pretty common, as screwed up as it may seem to us now. They found it shameful that she was pregnant and didn't want anything to do with her. Looking at the picture, knowing what we know now, it was a great move and likely saved her life. John and Helen are living in Michigan, and John lands a job as an accountant. In the span of four years, they had three children. The oldest was Patty, and then John Jr., and then Frederick. Now, John isn't able to keep a job for more than a couple years at a time. Working as an accountant requires some kind of personal relationship with others, but John didn't have that. He was cold and quiet. He was also known to be a perfectionist. Everything had to be just right. He even told a neighbor once that he thought about leaving the accounting firm and instead going to work as a life insurance salesman. The neighbor found this odd as John had no social skills. Salesmen are supposed to be charming and charismatic. People didn't even like John, so how could he sell them insurance? John and Helen were living in a loveless marriage. He and his wife were very different. He was this strict Lutheran who demanded perfect manners from his children and his wife. Helen was known to talk back to him and criticize him. She would just let him have it. If he, you know, criticized her about something, she would just fire right back. It was just an extremely toxic household altogether. John gets a job working for Xerox in 1965. This was a really good job for him. Working for Xerox in 1965 would be like working for Apple or Google these days. He recalled that he was doing all these international trips and staying in beautiful hotel rooms. He was flying all over the world and life was good. 
but eventually John was fired for not being able to keep up with the pace. As a perfectionist, he was slow, making sure everything was just right. But John ended up landing an even better job, this time as a vice president of First National Bank of Jersey City. This would mean the family would have to pack up and move to New Jersey. They found this beautiful mansion called called Breeze Knoll. The house was located in Westfield. This was an absolutely gorgeous house in the 1960s. It had 19 rooms, including a ballroom with a skylight. It was a very high dollar area and the neighborhood had large houses and perfectly manicured lawns. This house that John wants to buy is the biggest house on the block. This area is like the Beverly Hills of New Jersey in the 60s. It's located 16 miles south of Manhattan, New York. According to census data, the average person living in Westfield, New Jersey today makes $159,000 per year. The rest of the state, the average income is $76,000 per year. John saw this as a good Christian town to raise his family in. The mansion John wants to purchase is $50,000. In 2023, that's equivalent to $485,000. This was well more than John could afford. You know, people do this. Sometimes you purchase a house that you know you'll be devoting a good portion of your income to, or you buy a car that you know you'll have trouble making the payments on. John isn't really that much different than a lot of other people when it comes to wanting better things, but he really overdid it with this house. Even as the vice president of a bank, this was a pretty big purchase for his income. His mother was going to live with them, and she put down the $10,000 down payment on the house from her savings account. She had a good bit of money put away in the bank, so it was easy for her to just give him the down payment. But the deal was that she gets to live there. She had her own apartment upstairs, away from the family, and was known to spend most of her days upstairs. Helen wasn't crazy about this idea of her mother-in-law living with them. They didn't get along. But if that's what it takes to be able to move into this mansion, then she's just going to deal with it. Besides, she knew her mother-in-law would just stay upstairs and she wouldn't see much of her anyway. Money would get even tighter the following year. John loses his job and decided he wasn't going to tell anyone, not even his family. Instead, he would put on a business suit and he left every day at 7.30 a.m. and he would take the train into the city. He'd ride the train around and read the newspaper and then come home at the end of the day with his briefcase and pretend like he was at work all day. He refused to file for unemployment. He was too proud and saw this as a thing that would be beneath him. So how is he paying these bills and putting food on the table? Well, he took out a second mortgage. His wife, who is tired and weak and never leaves the house, never suspected a thing. He ended up finding another job as an accountant in New York City, but just like all the other jobs before, they let him go after a few years. In 1969, he decided to do what he told his neighbor he was going to do. He began selling life insurance. He wasn't very good at it, and selling life insurance, at least back then, you survive on commission. Most of these jobs paid a very small salary, and your commission is where you earned your real money. When you're not selling, you're not earning, which is why I will never make a living as a salesperson. I could not sell a single thing. <laughs> Years ago, I tried sales, and it lasted for three months. I just could barely sell anything. Like some people are born salesmen and can just sell, sell, sell. I am not one of those people. So yeah, <laughs> that job did not last very long. So John doesn't have a job now and he doesn't have any income. So what does John do at this point? 
He begins slowly draining his mother's bank account. Remember, she lives with him, so he had access to her papers and checkbooks. She had $200,000 in the bank, and John just slowly chips away at it. He also ends up taking out a third mortgage on his house. At this point, he'll be paying on it for the rest of his life. By 1971, he had only earned $7,400 that year. As this perfectionist who was in church every Sunday, he couldn't allow others to see him starting to break. He still refused to apply for unemployment. He would be humiliated if people found out he was losing jobs and his wife is an unhappy alcoholic who talks back to him and she has syphilis. His kids hate him. He couldn't pay for all these luxury items that he had. But yet he had no problem just being an unhappy man to everyone he met. He was cold and callous and not easy to get along with. A neighbor even mentioned that when John and his family first moved in, they brought a pie over and welcomed them to the neighborhood. John answered the door and accepted the pie, but told them, thanks, but we stay to ourselves. Basically, just fuck off and don't come over here anymore. Neighbors also say it could be 95 degrees outside and John would be outside in a full business suit cutting his grass. I thought about this and when I see my husband cutting grass, he's usually wearing some old work shirt and a pair of basketball shorts, usually has his AirPods in. I can't imagine looking outside and seeing him wearing long dress clothes. But John wanted others to believe that he was so much better than them that he's even willing to cut grass in a business suit. So these kids are teenagers now and beginning to rebel against their dad. Patty, the oldest, was known to be the most rebellious. She was a little more brave than her two brothers. Of course, most of the time they are well behaved, but Patty especially had more of a worldly personality than the rest of her family. Patty was in a theater group at her high school and John hated this. He thought her acting was ungodly and would make her fall in with the wrong crowd. Being an actress to him was a corrupt profession. Patty was also known to sneak around and smoke cigarettes and skip school. She also told some of her friends that she was a witch. Her dad caught her with a Ouija board once, and you know that didn't go over well. Patty was in charge of making dinner for the family every night. Most of the time it was TV dinners. She's a 16-year-old girl. That's what I would be making as well. John said he's tired of TV dinners. Picture-perfect households have large gourmet dinners, and he wasn't getting that. At times, John would tell Patty to just take it upstairs to Grandma. I don't even want to eat it. Once Patty was wearing a shirt that said, Make Love, Not War, John was so enraged that he began screaming at her and even ripped the shirt off of her. Patty told her friends that her dad hated her and her two brothers, even telling her drama teacher that she was scared her dad was going to kill them one day. Patty's drama teacher stopped by their house one day. While there, John Jr. grabbed his arm and said, You need to come by more. Do you think you can stop by more often? A week later, Patty called him and asked him to stop by again, but he couldn't at the time. He said later on he didn't like the vibe that the house gave him. The family kind of freaked him out. Not the kids. The teenagers were great. But the mom and dad didn't give off good vibes, especially the dad who was super religious and never smiled. Patty's boyfriend, a boy named Charlie Day, recalled going to the house so he and Patty could rehearse their acting lines and John making him wait in the front parlor until the family was finished eating dinner. He didn't invite him to the table or anything. Once John got on him about something and Helen chimed in that he was a nice boy and John had no room to speak to him that way. One month leading up to the murders, this is October 1971, 
John begins to relax more. He's not being as strict with the kids, and everyone is wondering what's going on with him, but welcomed the change in their dad. He stopped hounding them about reading their Bibles. He's not forcing them to go to church. He even allowed Patty to throw a Halloween party. Once the party was over, John helped clean up along with Patty and her boyfriend, Charlie. John is meticulously planning out the murders of his family. John had a picture of a perfect family in his mind, and that picture was crumbling. His wife and children were not living up to his expectations. At this time, John has $200 to his name, and he was $11,000 behind on mortgage payments. Helen is ailing and weak from her illness, at times just collapsing in the house. The syphilis is affecting her brain at this point, and she never leaves the house. On October 14, 1971, John applies for a gun permit, citing the reason was for home protection. He goes out to the shooting range and practices target shooting. It's been years since he was in the war, and he felt like he needed the practice. John begins planning everything out very cautiously and wants to make sure there isn't anything missed. November 9th, 1971 was the day he planned to kill his family. He doesn't want to have his family live in poverty and he felt that killing them would be saving them. Dying is better than living in a small house struggling to pay bills. He wrote letters to his children's school that said the kids would be out of school for a few weeks. The family was going to travel to Florida to visit Helen's mother, who was on her deathbed. He stopped the mail delivery, the milk delivery. He stopped the newspaper delivery. He has all of this planned out. On Tuesday, November 9th, 1971, all the kids are at school. John sees his wife, Helen, drinking coffee at the kitchen table, looking out of a window. He approaches her carrying his 9mm handgun. He raises his hands and shoots her in the jaw. She still had toast in her throat and was mid-swallow. She slipped to the floor and died immediately. Blood gushed throughout the kitchen. John makes his way to the third floor, where his mother's apartment was. 84-year-old Alma was startled as her son came through the door. She asked what that loud bang was from downstairs. He raises his gun and shoots her in the left eye. He tried to get her body downstairs, but she was too large, so he left her there on the floor. He goes downstairs and drags Helen's body down the large hallway and into their ballroom. He placed her in a sleeping bag. He attempted to clean up all the blood, but there was so much that it was covering multiple rooms. He wrung out the mop over four times. He goes to the master bedroom and vomits, and then he takes a shower since he's covered in blood and puts on a fresh business suit. He then leaves his boss a message that he would be out of town for a few weeks due to having to head to Florida with the family to see Helen's ailing mother. He doesn't want anyone to come by the house and check on them or wonder why they're not around. He's got hours until the teens come home from school, so he goes outside in his suit and begins raking leaves. Then he makes himself a sandwich and sits down and eats it at the table that he shot his wife at an hour earlier. When John one day was asked how he could just sit and eat after what he just did, he just replied, I was hungry. The phone rings and it's Patty. She wasn't feeling well at school and wanted to know if her dad could come pick her up early. This is an issue now because he had planned to ambush her when she came home from school. So he goes and picks her up and when they return home, John quickly exits the car and was quick to enter the house before her. 
He runs into the kitchen to grab his handgun. He crouched behind the front door, and when Patty entered the house, she walked past him. He put the gun to the back of her head and fired. He dragged her body down the hall and placed her in one of the sleeping bags he had lined up. Her body laid next to her mother's. This poor girl was only 16 years old. John cleans himself up and heads into town to mail the letters he had written to the school and his boss. The next victim was his 13-year-old son, Fred. Fred had a part-time job after school, so once his shift was over, he waits for his dad to come pick him up. Just like he had done with Patty, John hurries in the house before him. He crouches behind the door. Fred didn't even have his coat off when he looked up at his dad and screams as John is pointing the gun at him. John fired at Fred, and he died from a single gunshot to the head. He puts him in the ballroom in a sleeping bag next to his mom and sister. There is still one more sleeping bag laying there for John Jr. 15-year-old John Jr. has soccer practice. Now, I've read two different things here. I read that John actually went out and watched his son play, then they returned home. But I also read that John waited for at home for John Jr. to get dropped off by someone on the soccer team. I'm not sure which one is correct. Most sources say that John went out and watched the soccer team and then returned home with his son, but a book written about the whole case stated that John was actually waiting for him at home. Either scenario, John Jr. arrives home but enters the house from the laundry room. John is waiting there with his handgun. John Jr. reaches for his dad's gun and a bullet goes off and hits the ceiling. They are fighting over the gun and two shots go into the floor. A fifth bullet hits the window frame. John Jr. was fighting back. He eventually was overpowered by his dad and hit in the back with a bullet. Another hit him in the neck and the head. John wanted to make sure his son was dead, so unlike the others who died with just one single bullet, John fired 10 shots into John Jr., He then drags his body into the ballroom and places him in the last sleeping bag he has on the floor. All four bodies are lined up there next to each other in sleeping bags. He covered each of their face with a towel and then he knelt down and prayed over each body. His mother's body lays upstairs. Just then, John hears a doorbell ring. He quietly moves through the house and peers out of one of the windows. It was the mailman dropping off a letter. He waits for him to leave. And then John calls his pastor at Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church and says the family will be taking off for a few weeks to visit Helen's mother and they wouldn't be at service. He also wouldn't be able to teach Sunday school the next week as he would be out of town. The pastor said he would keep the family in his prayers and wish John well and he would see them when they got back from their trip. John then calls Patty's drama teacher and gives him the same story. Her teacher, whose name is Ed, felt uneasy because he remembered Patty saying her dad had threatened to kill them. He drove by later on that night but saw all the lights were on, so he figured everything was okay. John sits down at his desk and writes a letter to his pastor, one that he could leave in the house. I was able to find the full text from the New York Times. It was five pages long, so I'll only read you the bits and pieces that stood out to me. How this man seemed so calm, I will never know. Dear Pastor Ray Winkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught and any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that while not condoning this, at least possibly you will understand why I felt I had to do this. 
Number one, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seems to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. Number two, but that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. Number three, with Patty being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Number four, with Helen not going to church, I knew this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon. But when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jutsey wanted to pay her an elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off of the church rolls. Again, this could have only had an adverse result for the children's continued attendance. So that's the sum of it. If any one of those had been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from the hymn book. That was the least that I could do. Now for the final arrangements, please cremate. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to the extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please just let me be dropped from the congregation rolls. I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way I had hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many would say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is that it it, it isn't easy and it was only done after much thought. One other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. That's a lot to comprehend. Basically, he felt they would all be better off in heaven than here on earth being poor, since to him that would be humiliating, and they would likely grow up and not be Christians any longer. I was also astonished to learn that he was concerned about his books in the Holmes library. After he was done writing the letter, he makes himself some dinner and goes to sleep in the billiard room. The next morning, he set the heat to 50 degrees. He didn't do this to preserve the bodies, but instead to keep his pipes from freezing. He didn't want a pipe to burst and have people come running over. 
He turned on the light in every room and cranked opera music on the house's stereo system. He goes room to room looking at all of the family pictures on the wall. He takes scissors and cuts his face out of every one of them. This was so that it would be hard to look for him and get his photo out there. He had $2,500, likely stolen from his mother, and he packs some clothes in a suitcase and puts them in the car. John leaves his car, a blue Chevy Impala, at the JFK airport in New York. This was as a way to throw police off, thinking that he had fled the country. He's got plenty of time. Remember, he told everyone that he and his family would be gone for weeks. He leaves his car and he hops a bus and heads towards the city. From there, he took a train to Denver, Colorado, where he walked into a city office building and applied for a new social security card. Not John List, though. From here on out, he was going to be Mr. Robert Peter Clark. He would go by Bob. He gets a job as a short order cook, and now he has a new free life. Meanwhile, weeks go by, and no one has heard from the List family, just as John said they wouldn't. But neighbors found it odd that every light in the house was on, even in the middle of the night. So if you got close to the house, you could hear opera music playing inside. There's obviously someone home there, is what the neighbors are thinking. As time passed, neighbors began noticing that light bulbs were starting to burn out one by one. Neighbors also reported that they saw a white car creep past the house each week. This turns out to be Patty's drama teacher checking it out. On December 7, 1971, this is one month since the killings, Patty's drama teacher finally had enough. He got someone to go with him, and they walk up to the house and they begin peering in the windows. Neighbors see these two strange men looking in windows, and they call the police. When a policeman arrives, the drama teacher and his friend tell him about the situation. At this point, there was only one light on in the house, and it was upstairs. All the rest had burned out. The police officer finds an unlocked window and goes inside. It's very chilly inside this house. He hears the haunting opera music coming from the center of the house, almost like funeral music. Other officers join him, and when they get to the ballroom, there is a curtain that partitions it off. As they get closer to the ballroom, the smell of decomposition hits them hard. They don't know what they're going to find. They go in, and laying neatly on the floor in sleeping bags are the body of 45-year-old Helen, 16-year-old Patty, 15-year-old John Jr., and 13-year-old Frederick. Placed next to them was the murder weapons and John's confession letter to his pastor. In the letter, it says mother is upstairs and too heavy to move. They go upstairs and find the body of John's 84-year-old mother. A nationwide all-points bulletin is broadcasted. Shortly afterwards, John's car is located at JFK Airport, but there's no record of him taking a flight. Police and experts believe he won't be gone long and will eventually turn himself in. Being that he's a Christian, he won't be able to live with what he's done. John was nowhere to be found and living his new life as Bob Clark, the short order cook. Westfield, New Jersey was on high alert. People are scared out of their minds. Kids referred to him as the boogeyman. They don't know that he's hundreds of miles away in Colorado. No one knows where he could be. People are afraid he's going to come after them next. The kids' friends were most upset, especially Patty's boyfriend, Charlie. Children in the area avoided the house, even daring each other to set one foot into the large yard. A large funeral took place for all five victims. It was attended by most of the town and neighboring towns. 
Police kept watch to see if John was watching from afar. Patty's casket was carried by pallbearers who were in her acting group at school, including Charlie Day, her boyfriend. Helen and her three children shared a resting place. John's mother's body was flown to Michigan where she already had a plot. In August of 1972, this is around nine months after the killings, the mansion is burned to the ground. Now, it's believed that it was some teenagers in the area that did it. It's believed they burned it to the ground, not because they're bad teenagers who were like committing arson, but more for the reason that it was a respectful thing to do for the victims. Like, they wouldn't normally go around burning down houses, but three teenagers died in that house. They felt it needed to be burned down. After the fire, it was discovered that the ballroom ceiling that was stained glass had a really rare feature. It was signed by Louis Tiffany. I'm sure you're all familiar with Tiffany and Company. Louis Tiffany had died in 1902, and this large stained glass ballroom ceiling was hand signed by him and worth over $100,000 or $975,000 today. If John would have known that, it would have solved all of his financial problems. Just to put it into perspective, recently a guy on Facebook Marketplace had found two stained glass windows that came out of a very old church in Philadelphia that was being renovated. He bought the stained glass windows for $6,000. He cleaned them up and took them to the auction where it was determined that they were signed by Louis Tiffany. Keep in mind, these are windows. John had an entire ceiling. Anyway, he discovers at the auction that the windows were worth $250,000. Can you imagine being the pastor of that church that just sold them for six grand? Unreal. Signed Tiffany items are extremely rare and obviously worth a ton of money. If John would have known that, he would have been up there removing the ceiling piece by piece. Meanwhile, Bob Clark, also known as John List, rented a trailer near the Rockies in Denver, Colorado. He began working as a cook at the Holiday Inn. He's getting a little braver because he found a Lutheran church and began attending. He found a company that was looking for an accountant and he applied and got the job. Bob got a driver's license and a car. He began wearing jeans and t-shirts and going out to places. He met a woman named Dolores. She was divorced and Bob told her he was a widower. His wife had died of cancer. She asked to see a photo of her and he wouldn't show any to her. But in 1985, Bob and Dolores were married. Just like his previous life, Bob was soon fired from his job for not keeping up. He was also dismissed from his Sunday school teaching position at the church for being too strict and demanding of the students. It's almost like he's repeating his old life. Dolores is beginning to have regrets about marrying Bob and spoke of leaving him. Bob did form a friendship with his next-door neighbor, Wanda. They would sit outside and have coffee and talk like old friends, something Bob would have never done before. Wanda liked him, and it was purely platonic. They weren't interested romantically or anything like that. Wanda, like a lot of women in the 80s, liked to buy these trashy tabloid magazines at the grocery store. They were like everyone's guilty pleasure. Wanda picked one up and saw an article about a man named John List who had killed his whole family, including his mother, back in 1971. She says, oh my God, that looks just like Bob. While she's reading the article, she looks up and sees Bob working in his yard. She keeps looking down at the photo and then back up to him. Can you imagine if he walked up and was like, hey, what are you reading? Everything in the article listed about him was just like Bob, and she got an uneasy feeling. 
She waited until Bob went to work and walked over and showed Dolores and said, doesn't this look just like your husband? She's not sure what kind of reaction she's going to get. She didn't say much. Maybe she just didn't want to believe it. Dolores never said a word about this interaction to Bob. Years have gone by and John managed to not get caught. One detective on the case every year on John's birthday would go to the cemetery and stake out the family's gravesite with binoculars. He figured out of any day of the year, John would certainly show up on his birthday. Meanwhile, Bob Clark found an accounting job in Richmond, Virginia. So he and Dolores pack up and move there. It's the late 80s, and there's this new show out called America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. They reenact cases and show the most wanted people in America. Well, they ran a story on John List. So it had been 18 years since the murders, and they didn't have an updated photo of him. So they hired this sculptor to make a bust of what John would look like 18 years later. I saw it, and oh my God, it looks exactly like him. The sculptor even knew to keep the same style of glasses that John wore. He never changed his style of glasses, which makes me wonder why. People knew to look for a certain set of glasses. I urge you to Google John List bust, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The show aired on May 21st, 1989. 22 million viewers saw a photo of John List. Over 300 callers called into America's Most Wanted. That looks just like my ex-girlfriend's Uncle Phil. That looks like my taxi driver the other night. That guy goes to the bowling alley on 7th Street. One lady in New Orleans even called in and reported her husband. I laughed so hard when I saw that. Like, I wonder if he divorced her afterwards. She literally called in and said, that's my husband on there. And it didn't end up being him. Wanda, the old neighbor with the tabloid, watched the program and said, yep, that's Bob. She called the number that played on the screen and said, this is Bob Clark, and he and his wife live in Virginia. A detective arrives at Bob's house, and Dolores answers the door. He asks for Bob. She says he's at work, and he showed her the FBI flyer and said, is this your husband? She began crying and freaking out. She says there's no way that that could really be him, but... I feel like deep down she knew that it was him. Bob Clark was John List. John was at work when he was approached by police. He didn't look surprised when he saw officers walking towards him. They asked him if he is John Emil List. And he quickly said, no, I'm Bob Clark. He begins breaking out in hives and itching all over. He would finally face up to his crimes. His journey as a free man was finally over. He was fingerprinted and identified as John List. He pled not guilty and his bail was set at $1 million. Helen's sister arrived at the jail and asked him why he did it. He said because there was no other way. John will have his day in court. The prosecutor said he was cold and calculated. He planned these murders out very precisely like he did everything else in his life. His defense team argued that yes, John committed the murders, but his reason was because he, quote, he had a fragmented, obsessive-compulsive personality and was ill-equipped to function in the face of overwhelming difficulties. He had acted, he believed, for the salvation of his family in a godless world that no longer made sense to him. The trial only lasted for seven days, and on April 12, 1990, he was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. Connie Chung for ABC News actually did an interview with John List in 2002. He talked about the murders. 
He was 63 years old when he was captured back in 1989. So at the time of this interview in 2002, he was 76. When asked why John didn't commit suicide, he said he believed that people who commit suicide go to hell. If he committed suicide, he would not get to heaven to be with his family. He said he had a better chance of just committing the murders than asking for forgiveness once he arrived in heaven. He also believed that his family would not remember what happened to them when he arrived and greeted them. John worked as an accountant in the prison, likely the person keeping track of commissary money and money needed for supplies. All in all, he was in prison for 18 years, which was the same amount of time he had spent free after the murders. He died of pneumonia in 2008. Charlie Day, who was Patty's boyfriend, is in his 70s today. He was interviewed by a podcast called Father Wants Us Dead, where they deep dive into this story. And I saw on YouTube, he actually broke out a playbill he had from high school, and a bunch of his fellow actors had signed it, including Patty. He said that that's all he has left of her, and it's heartbreaking to watch. John was cremated, and someone actually came and claimed his ashes. It's not confirmed who it was. I don't know who would want them, but somebody did. The bodies of John's wife and children are buried in Fairview Cemetery in Westfield, New Jersey. Rest in peace to Helen, Alma, Patty, John Jr., and Frederick. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.